Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 544 with my guests Andrew Solomon and Juana Costa. Uh, The conversation you're going to hear was sponsored by uh, the National Alliance on Mental Illness uh, of West Los Angeles. If you guys have never checked out uh, NAMI, it's a really good resource, especially for the loved ones of people uh, dealing with uh, mental illness or other issues. Um, I think their national website is nami.org. Excuse me. That's no way to start the podcast. I like to kick. I like to kick things off. Flemmy. That's usually. Oh, I'm going to be honest right up front. Uh, I don't feel like saying my name, the name of the podcast, any kind of prefaces about what it is or what it isn't. I am depressed. I am in a. A dark hole that I know I'm going to get out of, but I'm in that place. Those of you that suffer from depression know what I'm talking about. Your brain just feels like it, like it hasn't been oiled. And it's hard to make decisions. It's hard to feel positive about anything. It's hard to put sentences together. It's hard to describe how you feel. I've just been climbing back in, in, in and out of bed. And... I don't know if it's food-related, gut-related. I'm having some digestive issues. It, you know, there are facts on the ground that are depressing with what is going on in everybody's life right now. But I think also some stuff I'm dealing with in my life, and I don't want to be a broken record about that. And I certainly don't want to. I don't want to bring anybody down. 
I don't want to make this all about me, but I also don't want to minimize uh, what I'm going through because I got to practice what I preach. And I preach all the time on this podcast about opening up to other people, letting them know where you're at. And if you're, if you're hurting, if you're struggling, say so, you know? And so I, I called a, somebody in my support group and I told him, I said, man, I'm, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a dark place right now. And, you know, I told him some of the stuff that was coming out of my pen, uh, when I had journaled about an hour before that. And a lot of it was just existential questions. You know, if, if there is a God is, are, are you, is, is this your plan for me to suffer? It, you know, Am I, how much of this will I be able to bear? Uh, you know, am I, oh God, I hate to get dark, but am, am I gonna, at some point down the road, if things never get better, and I know this is the depression talking, but am I gonna take my life? It's such a hard thing to say out loud, but I've been thinking about it a lot. Not that I wanted to do it, but is that there as, as an alternative because when when we are in the grips of something that controls our thinking it we want an exit door we want to know that there's a door if the building's on fire if there's a a door that we can get out of and i think it's important to talk honestly about this because otherwise i stuff it inside and i feel shame about it and I put on a face and I lie and I say, no, I'm, you know, I'm doing great. Or, you know, I don't share this with everybody. There's certain people I go, yeah, you know, I'm hanging in there. And I am. I am hanging in there. Uh, but I'm also, you know, having trouble falling asleep, having trouble waking up, uh, then having trouble staying awake once I get up. It's like... It's like my body decides, you know, what is it that you want from sleep right now? Oh, you want sleep? Well, we're going to take that away, you know. Oh, you don't want sleep? Well, we're going to make you sleepy. Sometimes it just feels like the the universe is is testing you. And and it was helpful to journal to get those thoughts out on paper because otherwise the positive person in me that I've worked really hard to culture um, just kind of takes over and says everything's going to be fine I trust in a benevolent force in the universe I have people who love me I've gotten through all of these things so far in my life why would I why would I not continue to survive difficulties and I know that's the truth but it doesn't feel like the truth and that's what's such a motherfucker about mental illness is there's a disconnect between the intellectual and the emotional and the intellectual tells you it's going to be okay this is temporary but the emotional tells you no it's not it's forever and day by day it's getting worse and you are becoming a burden and everyone you love will slowly pull away and then you're going to end it all that's how depression comes at me and throw in addiction and health issues, etc. So that's where I'm at. How are you?
I'm glad I said that, though. There's a part of me that's really self-conscious because I don't want people to worry about me. I also called my girlfriend, and it was very comforting to talk to her because she, I feel seen and heard and supported by her. And I am surrounded by people who love me and care about me, and I'm very grateful to have that. And I've worked hard to surround myself with people who love me. You know, a lot of the work was finding out what's healthy love and what isn't, what's codependent, what's tolerating toxic behavior. Anyway, I'm going down a bit of a rabbit hole, but I I don't know how how um, how many surveys I'm going to get to as I was kind of looking at these to put them in an order to read them, I was like, I don't know if I can get through two of these fucking things because I am just, I, I feel like a tumbleweed with legs. <sighs> there you have it. We are sponsored today, as always, by BetterHelp.com, online therapy, and thank God I'm talking to my therapist, Donna. Tomorrow, she always helps me feel seen and heard and kind of work through the the... Uh, the stuff that I'm going through, um, she kind of helps helps me with a little bit of cognitive behavioral therapy to just focus on what is happening right now, to stay in the present moment, and to not catastrophize. Um, if you've never tried online therapy, check it out. Go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from the podcast, and then just fill out a questionnaire, and if they have a counselor that they feel is a good fit for you. They will pair you up with one, and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if it's your thing, and you need to be over 18. All right, before we get to that interview with uh, Andrew and Juan, I want to read you uh, a couple of happy moments from a woman who calls herself hydrated crime right. I don't know if that's supposed to be a play on words. If it is, I don't I don't understand what it is. Um These could actually also be loves, but uh, it doesn't really matter how they're classified, Paul. Just fucking read them. She writes, uh, I love when my windshield is dirty, then I realize that for once I topped up the water. I ceremoniously allow the water to squirt for way longer than necessary, then satisfyingly watch the wipers swish all the old dirt away. That is a great one. When I collect my three-year-old from childcare, and the moment she sees me, she shouts, Mummy! and sprints over, jumping happily into my arms. In that moment, the whole world melts away around me, and the only thing that exists is that hug between my daughter and me. Pure bliss. I, ca I cannot, I don't have kids. I can't imagine what that must feel like. The closest thing I have is when I come home, and Gracie is hopping up on her hind legs uh, because I've been gone for 30 seconds. Uh, she writes, when I don't think I want to go to a social thing but go anyway, then about 10 minutes into it, I realize, yes, I made the right decision to drag my butt over to this and feel relieved to know I didn't just sit home watching Game of Thrones again. When I look on Spotify to see if a new podcast episode has landed, go into mental illness happy hour, and the whole list kind of jumps down as a new episode is added to the top. Hard to explain, but those who know, know, exclamation point. When my psychologist reveals something about herself and her own life, 
a rainy day, as living on the east coast of Australia, we don't get many rainy days, and when we do get them, I love to just veg out at home, as it always feels like such a waste to do that with the usual relentless sunshine. Uh, and finally, when a spell of anxiety or depression clears, then I realize most of the negative thoughts I've been having were just that, thoughts. And I realize my friends do not hate me, that I don't completely suck at my job, and that I do have meaning and purpose in the world. It's a relief to realize it was just my brain lying to me again. I just wanted to get the fuck away from my life. You know, I couldn't have felt any lure. Grief, guilt, shame. Why wasn't I born a girl? There's a switch that gets flipped in my head. I'm supposed to be a girl. I experience being treated like an animal. How can a just God... I have a vomit fetish. ...let humans do this to each other? Help! I fucking flew over the cuckoo's nest. My wife's losing it. I thought it was all about me. I don't know what to do. I would have committed suicide if I could have watched my funeral. A Polaroid I found of my mother um, naked in a dentist chair. And my body doesn't quite... I think I did eight days in L.A. County Jail. ...fit how I see myself. What was it all for? Why are my friends dead? Everything that I did, there's a comfort in the scars for me, was in service of OCD. You've already had all the paper cuts. Step away from the paper. It's really hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. You know, it takes a larger view to see your life. Just actually have somebody listen to you. Yeah. And I got up and got my tooth and left. <laughs> <laughs> Our first guest is an LGBTQ plus mental health advocate and speaker who serves on national committees. He's a New York Times bestselling author for a book that he co-authored with Lady Gaga called Channel Kindness. He currently serves as the Cal Hope Warm Lime Regional Manager. Please welcome Juan Acosta. Hey, Juan. Hey, Paul. Thank you so much for that introduction. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you, uh, thank you for being here. Let's uh, let's bring in our uh, our other panelist. Uh, he's a professor of medical psychology at Columbia University. He is the author of Far from the Tree and the Noonday Demon. He is uh, an activist in politics, psychology, LGBTQ affairs, and the arts. And he has one of the greatest quotes ever on depression, uh, which is the opposite of depression isn't happiness. It's vitality. Please welcome Andrew Solomon. Great to be here. Did I quote you correctly? You did quote me correctly. I'm very impressed. Can you recite <laughs> the book? <laughs> uh, say that last part you, you dropped out on my end. I said, can you recite the rest of the book? <laughs> <laughs> I can't even begin. Uh, there are a lot of topics that we want to try to get to, and we're also going to save some time for a, a Q&A session uh, after this. So anybody who's watching, if uh, an idea comes up to you, um, write it down and we'll see if we can get to it. Uh, something that I, I'd like to hear both of you share about is the intersection of LGBTQ uh, issues and mental health. Um, anybody want to jump in first? I can start. I mean, for me, it's really important. And my own lived experience informed my advocacy within LGBTQ plus mental health and the focus on it. Uh, the Trevor Project released a survey last year that noted that 40% of LGBTQ plus respondents of that survey seriously considered uh, attempting suicide and having suicidal thoughts and feelings. And that just tells you a lot of the state of LGBTQ plus members' mental health. 
there's oftentimes a lack of representation. And it's something that I had to really struggle with when I was growing up. I didn't see people who looked like me, who sounded like me, who were talking about their mental health. And that impacted me. And it informs my work every day because I know that there's many other young people who are still currently growing up in communities that might not be as accepting. And that really does damage your mental health and just your overall life in general. Do you feel like it's also exacerbated by being a minority? Definitely. It's, it's the minority aspect, but there's also intersectionality within LGBTQ plus mental health. For me, being an immigrant and coming to this country at age two from Mexico was something I already had to struggle with, just the battle of being an immigrant in this country, but also being a member of the LGBTQ plus community, identifying as a gay man and not knowing if I belonged to my culture because it's ran by machismo and the idea that men are strong and brave. And, you know, I can be strong and brave and I can be gay at the same time. And for me, that's something that I really try to hone in on and just really own my life because that's how I consider me being, you know, a member of the LGBTQ plus community. I, I believe it's a light, it's a gift. And I am so excited to have platforms like the one I have today to advocate and to speak on that experience. Uh, I, I think as a lot of us know, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, uh, a lot of times the best way to break through barriers of discrimination or stereotypes is for the person who holds those myths to meet a real live human being who uh, changes their idea about what it means to be gay or to be a minority. Do, do any instances come to mind Juan, where you've connected with somebody whose mind has has opened after becoming friends with you or a coworker or anything else? Definitely. And thank you for that question, Paula. I experienced that even within my own family, where oftentimes growing up, I would hear homophobic comments, not necessarily from my, my parents, but my cousins growing up and uncles. And I think once they would saw me being my true self and living my authentic truth, they were able to realize that, you know, they were putting all this pressure and all these comments that were unnecessary to a human because they were able to see my humanity after I came out because they knew me growing up and they knew the kind of person I was and the qualities that I had. And it didn't matter uh, if I was gay or not, because they knew who I was to my core. And I believe that's often the experience people have when they meet people who they have all this uh, preconceived judgments and stereotypes about. I think that's what our society needs more of, because oftentimes it's people talking at one another, it's people talking about one another, but they're never sitting down having that conversation to try to understand one another. And I think that's the most powerful way we can help change things in society. Couldn't agree more. Andrew, do you want to jump in and share some personal experiences or uh, thoughts you have on the intersection of mental health and LGBTQ plus uh, issues? Well, it's interesting to contemplate one's relationship to gayness, which was for many years defined as an illness, but which is now understood and lived primarily, at least for people like Juan and me, I think, as an identity, and depression, which I also suffered from very acutely, um, which remains primarily an illness, but also can be experienced as an identity. I found that I would 
I grew enormously through the experience of depression and of having a mental illness, but I wouldn't describe it as desirable. And (laughs) (laughs) that that might be the biggest (laughs) understatement I have ever heard. I found things that were meaningful in it, but I also kind of hate it. And I certainly hate the idea that it might ever happen to me again. Um, gayness, when I was growing up, um, which was um, a while ago, uh, was seen as an illness also. And I remember wishing it away when I was a kid. And now I'm happily married to my husband and we have kids and I have a life that was essentially unimaginable when I was growing up. And so I feel as though I've come to understand gayness, not as something that I would wish away, but as something that I actually cherish. Not that I couldn't perhaps have had an equally interesting life as a straight person, but it's not the one I happen to have had. So when you talk about the intersectionality, I feel like those of us who can experience gayness entirely as an identity and not as an illness are still a very select circle. Um, We're a circle of mostly urban, um, particularly male, more privileged people, privileged in one way or another, educationally privileged, um, not to make universals. There's great acceptance sometimes in um, other communities as well. But the question is whether you can tease apart what are the traumas you've experienced because of the attitudes of your family or other people toward your being gay, and what are the ways that you can bring about change in those attitudes in order to resolve some of your own struggle with mental fragility. And Harvey Milk was once asked by um, a young activist, what's the most important thing I can do for the movement? And he said, go out and tell someone. And so back to your earlier question and back to um, Juan's response to it, I think it's in going out and speaking publicly and openly and clearly about who we are, that we manage to achieve change. And hopefully the tendency toward doing that, which is so escalated, will continue to broaden. And I think it's true of mental illness, too. You know, most people now know that they know someone who's gay. And lots of people still don't know that they know someone who's struggling with mental illness. And if we could take both of those closets and knock them both to the ground, I think the liberation of intersectionality that would follow would be monumental. Uh, I, I totally agree. And as you were talking about those things, you know, it was occurring to me that the, the best solution or tool for both of those struggles is community and vulnerability. And it's so hard when you feel different or like you're going to be judged or at the very least pitied. You know, I think a lot of people who lived in accepting communities can still feel afraid of opening up because they just don't want to feel different or, or look down upon, not like they're not lovable, but like they're all of a sudden different and you know, to be patronized when you're suffering with something, it, it, I don't know, I'll speak for myself. It feels worse uh, than isolating and not having to deal with that. And I think that's why a lot of us who struggle with mental health issues will just pull, pull away. We believe that crystal ball in our mind that is for the most part broken. And it's, it's uh, the, the disease has home field advantage when it gets us alone. Uh, Share, if you would, uh, both of you, um, any moments when you came out and what it felt like 
not only emotionally and mentally, but maybe even physically as well, because I believe there's a there's a big relationship between how our body feels and how our mind and our spirit feel. Well, I at least came out, I think, quite gradually um, in terms of being gay and quite suddenly in terms of being depressed. I didn't talk about the idea that I was depressed until I was um, pinned down and unable to move and unable to function. And at that point, I had to talk to friends about it. And when I emerged from my first bout of depression, I wrote an article about it for The New Yorker, and then it was out there for everyone to see and everyone to think about being out as gay, I feel, is still a kind of gradual process, and it has to happen day after day after day. I've just been through the process of getting a new puppy for um, our family and for our son. And the breeder was located in um, a rural part of the American South. And we had a very pleasant correspondence, but there was a lot of sort of use of words like blessings that came into it. And I had the thought all over again, if I tell her I'm gay, is she not going to want to sell me this puppy? In the end, I said, my husband is actually going to drive down and pick up the puppy. And it all seems to have been fine. And she and I have been going back and forth about, um, you know, dog beds and things like that. But there's always that sense that you have to come out all over again and you have to tell someone all over again. And even though I've written about it and even though I've been as public as I can be about it, I feel as though it's a it's a daily challenge. Yeah, I think trauma survivors also experience that there's you know, I'm a trauma survivor and there's always this fear that when I share my experience of childhood sexual abuse, that somebody's not going to believe me or they're going to ask a question that feels uh, dehumanizing or just something that's going to make it awkward or uncomfortable and that they're going to treat me differently. Uh, what what advice do you have for anybody who's who's out there and is afraid to have a conversation uh, with somebody that they're afraid might judge them? And Juan, feel free to jump in as well. Yeah, for me... I think having a conversation with my parents actually about coming out was really scary for me. I had, you know, made up a, a huge wall, a barrier with my parents. I remember I used to not try to talk to them too much about what was going on in my life during school and stuff because I didn't want them to question me. And before moving to San Francisco, where is where I pursued my higher education, I came out to them thinking like, I'm going to move. If they don't want to talk to me, that's fine. Like, this is going to be a new change in my life. And I just basically set myself up to think that they weren't going to accept me. And that was really difficult for me to do, but they did. And that was like a huge surprise. And like it really physically impacted me because it felt like a weight off my shoulders. And my dad hugged me, he gave me a kiss on the cheek. My mother wow. did well, but I know I'm lucky and it doesn't happen to every single LGBTQ plus kid, especially from communities of color. But that was a conversation that I thought I was going to come out of defeated, not having my parents support anymore. But that's when I felt the most loved. Because Do you remember what it felt like in your body when you got the hug and the kiss and the acceptance? Yeah, I literally got the chills. <laughs> like it, it felt like, I don't know, it felt out of this world just because it was something that really impacted my mental health growing up in school. And I feel like I was labeled gay before I was actually able to admit it for myself. And that impacted me because it's like all my all my classmates were pointing fingers like, 
oh, he's gay, he's gay. And I didn't even know what being gay was at that point. Mind you, I was like in elementary and in middle school. But the fact that I was able to do that with my parents and to have their support 100% meant the world to me. And I think back to that day often and it informs a lot of how I perceive my life. Like Andrew was saying, even now, like when you go into these spaces, it's scary because you have to come out again or you have to share some pieces of your story. And it can, you never know how people are going to like handle that or just really deal with that information, especially like in work environment. So it can be scary. It can be traumatizing over and over again. But I, I do see the power and the why behind it. And I remind myself of that why to continue pushing and trying to aim for acceptance. Any... Say... Yes, go ahead, Andrew. I was going to say, I just add to what Juan has said, what he expected that didn't happen does happen to a lot of people. I mean, it's um, something like a third of homeless youth in the United States are LGBTQ+. Um, an enormous number of people are rejected by their families of origin and are taken in by other families. When we talk about the intersection between um, one's ident- sexual identity and, uh, and mental illness, you know, in the first place, there are the people who would have had mental illness anyway, because it's pretty evenly distributed across the population. But in general, depression in particular results from the intersection of a genetic vulnerability and triggering circumstances. And the likelihood of those triggering circumstances among LGBTQ plus youth is so enormously high that many of them are put into the situation of having to deal with mental illness, who if they lived in a more accepting world would not. And so I think when we rally for uh, advances in one area, we have to rally in for advances in both. The activist um, Emma Lazarus, who was herself gay and who wrote the poem on the Statue of Liberty, um, it said, until we are all free, we are none of us free. And so when you talk about the intersectionality, I almost don't feel like you fight for gay rights here and you fight for um, rights for people with mental illnesses there. I feel like it's all part of a larger fight for acceptance of all of us for whoever we are with whatever complications we carry. Yes, and that's the why behind it. And I think it's so important. Even now where many LGBTQ plus young people are living with their parents, maybe they have to move back from school and now they're at their parents' home where they might not be accepted. And this has been throughout the past year of the pandemic, which is I think it's important to, to think about and to really be purposeful as the why behind it. And as Andrew was mentioning, having that fight in general for everyone, because I, 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 as I said, I got lucky that my parents received the news like that. Um, But it's not everyone's case, as Andrew was just saying. So what type of mindset going into a conversation with somebody where you're going to reveal your sexuality or your mental struggles? Is it uh, hope for the best, be prepared for the worst? Is each situation different? Is there anything you could recommend to somebody who who is about to have to have a difficult conversation with someone they love and are afraid of losing? I would say in the first place, don't underestimate the people you talk to. I mean, one's description of a good surprise, I think, happens more often than people realize. There are lots of people who seem as though they would be unaccepting or my positive experience with the the 
puppy owner in um, the South. There are lots of people who are able to, um, to respond better than you think. But also, and it's inconvenient and it's tiresome, but it's true, you have to recognize the vulnerabilities of the person you're talking to and you have to accept that they may have entrenched attitudes. And if you want to change them, you're not going to do it in the sentence in which you say, by the way, I'm gay. That's not going to accomplish the goal. It's going to be a long process. It's going to take time. What you want is someone who's open at least to having a conversation rather than someone who slams the door. And sometimes a gentle approach is the best way to open that conversation. I love that. And it is about unlearning and unpacking for many people, especially people who have grown up in other generations or from different cultures who might have different attitudes towards these topics. Um, I, I believe the advice is that do it when you're prepared. I think for me, even though I always knew when I was out to some friends, I didn't tell my parents until I felt like I was prepared, until I felt like I had what it took to, if needed, move out on my own in order to, to live my life. Because that's what I realized that I wanted to live my life on my own terms and I didn't want to live a life for anyone else. Um, and I think it's wonderful. There's national coming out day and there's this, uh, like all this media around it, but I think it's important to just do it when you're ready, when, you know, you have a support system, not everybody has friends they can go and talk to. Um, but just, being mindful of the resources that might be available to you and where to go if if you need a, a place. I love it. I think so often in in life, one of the best plans that we can have, especially when we're going through something difficult, is to ask ourselves, will this choice leave me cornered without options? And uh, I think one of the th- pluses of having a community and a support network is we're almost never cornered. You know, it's, we do not go through life alone, or at least we don't have to talk about, uh, peer support. Juan, uh, you've been working the, the warm line for Cal hope. Uh, first of all, tell us what Cal hope is and, um, what it's like being a, regional manager for that. I'm, I'm guessing that you do get on the uh, phone and talk to people. You're not just uh, filling out uh, work shifts and, and telling Rick he's got the, the day shift on Wednesday. No, yeah, I've been able to, to speak to people on the phone and COVID and CalHope Cal is a response to COVID. It's a line where people call with COVID concerns specifically. But prior to that, I was working at the California Peer and Warm Line, which is just a peer warm line where people are able to call and receive support from people who've been there before. For me, peer support really saved my life. As I said, I, growing up, I didn't know what depression was. I didn't know what anxiety was. So I just knew I felt quite honestly like shit, but I didn't know exactly what was going on. I didn't know how to label it. One, because I didn't have the knowledge of these labels. It's not really talked about in my culture and in school, we don't really talk about these things just yet. And for me, it was life-changing and life-saving, quite literally, for me to hear from other people who might look like me, who might come from a specific place, specific region, who get me. And that's why I got so involved in peer support. And I think it's a great service to call a warm line because 
you're able to receive that support before the crisis. Oftentimes in the mental health system, people don't receive support until they're in a crisis. And I genuinely believe that we need more preventative resources and places where people can go and talk to. I really don't have a great experience in the clinical mental health field just because I, I went through a lot when I was trying to see a therapist. It, it just didn't feel right for me. And peer support was something that really saved me when I needed that support. And I think it's oftentimes what I hear from people when they call into a warm line is that they tried the clinical uh, field, but it just didn't work for them. And people have different needs. I'm not by any means saying the clinical system does not work because I know it works for some people, but we have to be mindful of others who might not have the access to reach a therapist who might not have enough money who might not have a mode of transportation or any of that. And I think that's where warm lines and peer support are so helpful. And there's something so healing about hearing a story come out of someone's mouth that you resonate with, that feels like you're, you're not alone. Um, and there's also something nice about uh, getting help from somebody that you're not paying. <laughs> As as simple as it sounds, I'm sure you guys have experienced this in therapy where you think they're just saying nice things because I'm paying them $125 an hour. Andrew's case is in New York City. It's probably $400 an hour. But uh, does that uh, ring any bells for you guys? Well, I would point out as a general statistic that of the people who develop depression and anxiety, only half at most will seek any form of treatment or discuss it with a doctor. Of that half who seek treatment, only half will receive any form of treatment. And of the ones who receive any form of treatment, only about 25% will receive optimal and fully effective treatment. So the number of people who are being treated is really tiny and the disgrace of the American healthcare system uh, and its uh, many injustices one of them is that it treats mental health as kind of a luxury. You know, if you're a privileged person and you have fancy health insurance, then they'll cover your going in for therapy, at least to some degree. And if you have financial resources, perhaps you can cover it yourself. If you're not in a privileged position, then you don't have access by and large to mental health coverage. And plenty of people who are in privileged positions don't know enough about their own condition and situation to be able to judge when they're getting competent care. So it's a really huge issue and it's a real national embarrassment. And it's not only an embarrassment because it's cruel not to give mental health treatment to people who need it. It's also economically really, really short-sighted because in fact, people who are suffering from acute depression and anxiety frequently struggle to function in the world. And if you give those people some form of treatment, many of them then have the vitality, to use my trademark word there, they have the vitality to um, pull themselves together and re-enter society and take better care of their children and join the workforce. And so this economy, which has been foisted on us by right-wing elements within the government, but which has never become, I think, adequately a topic for um, the larger population, this is really um, uh, not only uh, cruel, but also short-sighted and foolish. Yeah, if you care about the gross domestic product, uh, give people better access to, to health care. Uh, 
One of the hallmarks of depression is difficulty making decisions. And I'm sure you guys know when you're in that dark, dark place, the thought of even trying to figure out where you're going to look for help, the words you're going to use to describe what it is that you're going through feels so completely overwhelming. And I would say to anybody who's listening, who wants to be an advocate, uh, especially somebody who has a loved one who's suffering is to understand the difference between trying to change that person and letting them know that you are available if they want assistance when they are ready to get help. Uh, a lot of codependence, I think, can come into play when a loved one is struggling because we think the loving thing to do is to change that person into who we want them to be. And that can be a really, really perilous uh, path to, to go down uh, and it can not only alienate us, but it can sour that person's idea of what help is going to feel like. Oh, it's going to be a bunch of people telling me what I need to do rather than making suggestions or, you know, combining it with uh, people telling their stories and helping me feel a part of something bigger. Does that make sense? That makes tremendous sense. And I think the hallmark of depression is a feeling of loneliness for people, whether they're lonely or not. Also, people who have essentially rather nice lives and suddenly begin feeling terrible are likely to self-identify as having a problem and to seek help. People who have very bleak and difficult lives often don't self-identify as having a problem and they therefore don't go out and seek the help that would really be transformative for them because it hasn't crossed their mind. And while it's difficult to get the help, even if you are out there searching for it, it's impossible to get the help if you're not even out there searching for it. So one of the things that we really need and that I think peer counseling of the kind that Juan has been talking about can provide for people is a sort of set of standards because often it's not that you feel awful because you're life is bleak. It's that your life is bleak because you aren't feeling well enough to do things that might make it better. Well said. Andrew, uh, are you comfortable talking about being the parent of a uh, non-binary kid? I'm not the parent of a non-binary kid. I have got to relook at my research. <laughs> I've written about non-binary kids. I'm, oh, the godparent of, I'm the godparent of a non-binary kid, and I think I may have mentioned that the other day. Okay, God sorry. Parent rather than parent. Uh, I okay. mean, my kids so far don't appear to be non-binary. Who knows what the future holds? But um, no, I have a godchild who's non-binary, and I'm happy to talk about that. Okay, uh, please. Um, well... In writing uh, my last sort of big book, which was Far From the Tree, I wrote about um, trans children. And there's been this extraordinary shift over the last 20 years. When I started doing that work, people said, how can a child be trans? And now there are trans children all over the place. In having a personal relationship with a non-binary child, I'm very aware of uh, how much more acceptance there is than there used to be but also how much discomfort lingers and aware also that there are many questions about how you define yourself and why you define yourself in that um, uh, particular way. I think it's fantastic that we now allow for non-binary children. It should be noted that many children who in childhood appear to be non-binary grow up to be, as they sometimes say, merely gay. Um, and it's important to allow children a real range of identities so that 
in the way that they used to feel boxed into conforming to hetero norms. They don't now feel boxed into um, uh, trans norms. But for my own non-binary godchild, um, they're doing really, really well. And I think they've experienced a kind of ease and acceptance that certainly would have been almost unthinkable when I was a child. Any advice for uh, the child or the parents of the child who want to begin hormone therapy? Well, I'm a great believer in puberty blockers. They have some complications, but Lupron and other drugs like that um, postpone puberty so that the child has some time to think about it all. Um, And then I think, you know, you have to be sure that this is what the child genuinely wants because there will be changes to the body which are not reversible. But when it is what the child really wants, I think it's an unbelievable liberation. And in some ways, I feel like in the same way that parents a generation or two ago could accept many things about their children, but not that they were gay, that parents of this generation can often accept a lot of things about their children, but not that they're trans. Um, And the parents have to look at whether their unwillingness to see their child as trans represents an attempt to protect the child or an attempt to protect their own view of the world and their own habits of thinking. And if you have a child who is authentically trans, um, then it's fantastic if you can protect that child from going through the so-called wrong puberty. It's much easier um, to live as a woman if you haven't developed um, a facial hair. It's easier to live as a man if you haven't developed breasts and the widening of your um, hips. And if people want to live in the middle, they should be able to decide what kind of puberty they want to go through and to what extent they want to go through it. So listen is my advice. My advice is listen to your child. It would be interesting to see in the following generations what children's rights will look like in determining what their gender or lack of gender will look like from childhood until they're 18. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? I love that we're touching on generations and I'd love to know, Andrew, like not the differences, but what do you see today in this day and age that is still similar to when you were growing up? And I know it's still difficult to this day for for many of us, especially there's this idea that now because gay marriage is legalized in the United States, suddenly being gay is completely like, okay. And it's like accepting. And now that's not the reality of it. Um, there's still so much to do, so much to fight, especially outside of the United States. As Andrew was mentioning, there's so much more that has to be done in order for people in general to get all of these rights that we have here in the States. But in many countries, that is still not the case where people are still being murdered for being gay where they can't even mention that they're gay because there's quite literally no physical safety for them to even come out in these places. Um, so Andrew, I'd love to to know what some of those commonalities are in this day and age and then when you were growing up as well. Well, the international question, I think, is one that is front and center in um, one's mind all the time. We have now a Libyan refugee who's living with us, someone I met briefly when I was in Libya reporting for The New Yorker um, in the early 2000s. And 10 years later, he got in touch and said, I don't know if you remember me, but I'm now 
living in Lebanon as a homeless person. And um, I wondered if you could send me $100 because I have no legal status here. And so I can't make any money. I went on in that vein. And I thought, wait a minute, you were in medical school and you were doing really well and you spoke perfect English. And what is all of this? And we were able to help him to get refugee status. And then I had to say to my husband, they said he could come to the United States, but that they were going to um, send him to rural Nebraska. And I thought, okay, this isn't not to be geographically snobbish, but I thought a gay Muslim displaced from his society is not going to have such an easy time in rural Nebraska, I don't think. So I said, no, why doesn't he come to New York? And they said, well, only if you'll guarantee his living expenses for the first six months. And I said to John, look, I said, I barely know this person. I said, I've been helping him out with this. How do you feel about it? And we agreed that the privilege we experience as gay people in New York um, is so different from the experience of most of the world that there was a kind of moral obligation to say yes. He's turned out to be a completely wonderful guy and he's now lived with us for five years and he's really become part of our family. Um, and he's returned to his medical studies, which is really fantastic. Um, but, uh, but it's humbling to realize the things that people are still going through. And he had fled Libya after he was outed by someone who he thought was a friend. Um, and after he had seen friends of his frog marched into mosques and shot in the back of the head, Libya is not a nice place for being gay. So these stories are very real to, um, to us and we live closely um, with them and think about them a lot. So far as generationality, I think again, there is an enlightened world and there are people who are enlightened and a lot of the people who are enlightened are not privileged and they're just people who have been interested or who have thought about these subjects or who have um, read something or watched stuff on TV or known somebody. There is much, much, much more acceptance, but there is still a lot of unacceptance. I feel like the young gay people I know now, many of them imagine getting married, imagine being able to have a family, imagine being able to work in pretty much whatever field they want to work in. But there's still, I mean, you said there's a very high rate of suicide among LGBTQ plus kids. A lot of the kids in the foster system, a lot of the homeless kids, a lot of all of those kids are LGBTQ and they are still struggling as direly as they, um, as they ever did and feel afraid of the society and are therefore often, I mean, they're more likely to get trafficked, they're more likely to be drawn into um, prostitution um, or sex work, which, you know, if they've chosen it is fine, but if they feel they have no other choices is not so fine, um, that they're um, uh, more likely uh, to have all kinds of difficulties. And I think the sort of golden thing on the hill to aspire to is for people to feel that their relation that they can have whatever kind of relationships they want if they want a monogamous relationship if they want a polyamorous relationship if they actually don't want a relationship that all of those options are fully available to them um, when i was growing up i felt like one of the things that people said to me one of the things that my own mother said to me when I came out was, you're gonna end up having a lonely life. That turned out not to be the case, but that was the perception. And if some people at least are now growing up without that perception, that represents generational progress. But my hope is that in the same way that I feel jealous of the things that are available to your generation, that when you're um, in your 50s like me, you will feel the same degree of envy for the next generation because things will have progressed so much farther. That's, that's, what, that's what we can hope for in the future is I hope I am insanely jealous 
of people that are younger than me. <laughs> that's that's the the not silver lining to uh, the the world progressing. I love it. Uh, we're going to segue now into some of the questions that uh, attendees have, and I'm going to tag this one onto what we were just talking about with um, LGBTQ plus issues. And uh, this person asks. Um, It just moved up, and so I lost my place. How can allies best help uh, people in the LGBTQ plus community? What what can we do? I know that's kind of a very large general question. I think from, in my perspective, is create real safe spaces. I feel like oftentimes when you go to classrooms or in just an environment, there's oftentimes posters with butterflies and rainbows that say this is a safe space, but what exactly are people doing to ensure that the space is actually safe for the people who are attending, who might belong to these communities? I think it's important to be mindful of language and to also just check up on people. I think just asking the questions is is important because if you don't ask questions and you're not actually assessing for people's needs, I think making resources, sharing them with friends who you might know or people you might know are at a bigger disposition to be struggling and sharing those resources is important as well. And I, I think just, also getting out and voting and making this a priority. I mean, I'm on the board of the National LGBTQ Task Force, and one of our board members, who's currently our board chair, is a straight woman who said, this is the civil rights struggle of our time, and I felt a moral imperative to join it. I mean, there are a lot of civil rights struggles of our times, of course, but to show that people care. We would not have won marriage without um, uh, the help of straight allies, and we won't win anything else without the help of straight allies. In the United States, it is currently still legal in many states to fire people for um, being gay or to refuse them housing for being gay, and in some places even to refuse medical care or other services for being gay. Marriage is very nice. I happen to be married, and I'm delighted, but it is not the whole story was in many ways not even the most important part of the story. And I think there's a need for activism of every kind and for love and for making people feel unconditionally loved. And if you can express that love, not only the love for your own children, and maybe love is too strong a word, but make people feel that they are embraced for who they are and that you as a straight person don't think all the time, oh, they're really nice, but I wonder what they'd have been like if they were straight. Just see them for themselves. Yeah. I love that, Andrew. And, you know, you could do stuff locally as well in your community, reaching out to your leaders and holding them accountable. I, for me, I drafted a proclamation that proclaimed June as LGBTQ plus Pride Month uh, at the age of 21, and it passed for the first time in the town's history. And that's great, and it made history. But for me, I thought about why it took 21 years, which is how old I was at the time for this to happen. Why didn't we embrace these people who are contributing, who need to feel like they belong to this community? Why aren't we embracing them before? And when people ask how to be better allies, it's just to be self-aware, accept, love people, go out there with them and fight for them as well. One of the things I think many of us have probably experienced is an offhand remark that somebody makes. Maybe it's uh, about someone being gay or trans. 
And you don't know whether to just let it go or say something. And if you do say something, how to say something, what are the words you choose? What's the tone that you choose? Uh, One of the hobbies that I have is playing hockey. And you can imagine uh, a locker room full of hockey players is not a place that that you would see as the most open-minded, sensitive place for conversations. And one night, a guy made a comment. I don't remember it was, but it was something that was mildly disparaging of trans people. And as I was sitting there mulling over whether or not to say something, another guy spoke up guy probably about, I don't know, 15, 20 years younger than me. And he just said, you know what? That's not cool. Uh, that's a real stereotype. And uh, that's that's pretty offensive. And the guy who had made the joke was like, oh, uh, you know, I didn't mean it to be offensive. I just, I, you know, I come from a different time. And he was trying to kind of explain it away. Um, my My thought is, Is there a way that we can help change somebody's mind or at least let them know that feelings are being hurt and they're doing damage without shaming and ostracizing that person? Any any thoughts on that, you guys? I think sharing the why behind it, right? I think for some people who have these thoughts, they might not know the impact that this has on young people or just LGBTQ plus people in general. I think when you make comments like that, you're not aware of the impact and how much it emotionally impacts someone, how their mental health is impacted by comments like that. And it's important to just remind them of that because they might not be aware. So it might not even be a reminder, but it just might be letting them know and making them aware that that's hurtful for people. There's people who have suicidal thoughts and feelings because their pronouns aren't being respected, which is why I think pronouns are so important. but I think sharing the why behind it is important. And I also want to validate that it is not our job to educate people, but people should be educating themselves on these topics and issues as well, because it's the reality of our society. But I think a way to handle those comments is by sharing the why, because it helps people grow and it helps them be aware that that's hurtful. Andrew, any thoughts? Well, I think Juan is exactly right. I think that's just what needs to be done. And I think if you approach it with the attitude of sort of, I'm going to educate you about this thing you might not know very much about, and perhaps I can be helpful, that's going to work better than being outraged and furious. Um, Outraged and furious tends to escalate the conflict and to entrench people in their point of view. Um, If you say, this is, there are trans people in my life, this is who they are, this is what's important to them, or I've heard about this experience of trans people or that experience. I think if you keep it gentle, you're more likely to be able to bring about that change. There are cases where you can't keep it so gentle, but when you can, it works better. Tell us about the bar fights, Andrew. (laughs) Yeah. Somebody asks, would the panelists mind sharing the thoughts on how to be the most inclusive in the use of language around preferred gender pronouns? I think if you don't know, just ask and don't ever assume someone's pronouns. That's just, you know, I think it's very much straightforward. Do not ask um, after you've already 
giving them pronouns, don't make assumptions. I think that's always what I, I consider to myself and I think about often. It's like, don't make assumptions. Ask people if you don't know or use they, them pronouns if you're not aware of their pronouns already. Andrew? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Ask people and um, remember that people's pronouns are their personal choice. And in the same way that you wouldn't just walk up to someone and say, well, your name is Stephen, but I've decided to call you David instead. You shouldn't say, okay, you say you prefer those pronouns, but I have known you for years by these other pronouns and I'm just going to stick with those. I mean, if the person has changed their pronouns, pay attention to the change in those pronouns and, and give them the authority to make those decisions. And certainly if you meet someone new, even if the pronouns don't match the person's appearance from your standpoint, still, they're their, they're their pronouns, they're their choice and their property. And, and I would also add, and don't beat yourself up if you make a mistake and you're a well-intentioned person. Uh, be willing to apologize and say, I'm sorry, I, you know, I, I meant to say such and such. Or I have a friend whose name is, uh, for the first 15 years I knew him, his name was Jamie. And he didn't transition or anything. He just now wanted to be known as James. And I still have difficulty remembering to call him James. Uh, so I, I think sometimes we ne also need to keep in mind as, as we're being advocates to be nice to ourselves too, and to accept our flaws and our humanness as, as long as we are striving to be, become a, the person that we want to be and that society needs. Um, is it as easy to talk about your mental illness as it is for your gayness? This person asks. I would say that it's neither easier nor more difficult, but it's different. Um, I think, you know, as I said at the beginning, I feel like there is a general acceptance of the idea that your sexuality is something you are supposed to wear with pride. And the general perception in the United States as currently constituted is still that mental illness is shameful, that it's a failing and that it's a basis for not progressing uh, in the world as you otherwise might. So, um, uh, you know, the, the anti-gay people are sort of more organized than the anti-mental illness people. So you have to nice. be prepared for that. People get lynched, especially trans women of color, but all kinds of um, people in the LGBTQ range in a way that people with mental illness don't as much, though, of course, the police often respond inappropriately to people with schizophrenia or people with autism or people with other conditions that cause them not to interact in expected ways with um, law enforcement authorities. But I would say both take a lot of coming out. In the world I live in, being gay is no big deal and being depressed has required more explaining um, and more conversation with people. And I feel like I run into insensitivities all the time. I mean, somebody whom I've known since high school sent me a note the other day and said, can you recommend a psychologist for me to see because I'm having a rough time? And I wrote back and said, well, given what you've described, and there's much more to his note than that. I said, given what you've described, I said, you probably should also see a psychiatrist and consider the possibility of medication. Why don't you go and at least see someone and have a consultation? And he wrote back and said, I'm not interested in screwing around with my mind with a bunch of chemicals. 
And I thought, okay, I've written a book about the fact that I have screwed around with my mind with a bunch of chemicals. And that wasn't the most sensitive thing you could possibly have said. I realized you're having a rough time. I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. But, you know, you run into it a lot. Um, yeah. And I often have people say to me, so you seem like you're doing really well. Are you going, are you off your medications? And I say, no, it would be nice to be off them, but <laughs> I've tried going off them and the results were not happy. So I'm just sticking with them for the time being. One of the things that uh, you and I talked about briefly, Andrew, was you having contact with the parents of the Columbine shooter and the parent of Adam Lanza, who was the uh, shooter in Sandy Hook, was it? I think a lot of people, myself included, when we see somebody shoot up a school, our first thought is their parents are absent, probably abusive, and probably the cause. And as I've come to find out, once again, I'm completely wrong and have stereotypes in my head about what's what's really underneath. Can you talk about that? Yes, I think that criminality, like many of the of like mental illness, like homosexuality, like other things, can occur in any family. Um, again, I think it involves a natural proclivity and triggering circumstances. So children who are abused have experienced more of those triggering circumstances and are probably more likely to commit crimes. Um, but and it you, might be bullying at school rather than a parent who's abusive. It's usually on a smaller scale. But the people who commit these extraordinary crimes that capture headlines are people who are disordered in some profound way and who often come from families in which um, either it was recognized they had a problem and every attempt was made to help them or in which they covered up who they were so effectively and so well that the parents were shocked and I remember going to talk to Tom and Sue Klebold, the parents of Dylan Klebold, who was one of the perpetrators, as you said, at the Columbine Massacre, which was in its time the worst school shooting in the world's history and remains the template for many that have taken place since. And I had spent years convincing them to talk to me. And when I finally went to see them, they were so full of their story that they couldn't stop telling it. And I recorded 20 hours of interviews the first weekend we spent together. And on Sunday night, we were all exhausted and we were sitting in the kitchen and Sue was making dinner. And I said, if Dylan were here now, I said, is there anything you'd want to ask him? And his father said, I, there sure is. I'd want to ask him what the hell he thought he was doing. And his mother sort of looked down and she thought for a minute. And then she said, I would ask him to forgive me for being his mother and never knowing what was going on inside his head. And I felt like the response was a, a loving and maternal response. And I really liked the Klebold. I mean, I happen to be quite fond of my own parents, um, but I would have been perfectly happy to have Tom and Sue Klebold as my parents. And they did, you know, nobody does everything right with their child, but they did almost everything right, as right as they could. And this is still what happened. And we used to say, that it was bad parenting, that, you know, autism was caused by refrigerator mothers and schizophrenia by parents who nourished an unconscious wish that their children not exist and gayness by um, overbearing mothers and um, uh, withdrawn fathers and so on and so forth. And we've stopped blaming parents for autism and for schizophrenia and for gayness and for many other things. But we still blame the families when someone commits atrocious crimes. And 
While there are some people who commit crimes who are unloved, there are many people who commit those crimes who are deeply loved. Did they experience social shunning after the event? Oh, they experienced enormous social shunning and social shunning. And I remember saying, well, why didn't you just move? And they said, if we had moved somewhere else, we would have moved in as the parents of that killer. Or we could have tried to live under assumed names, but someone would have found out and that would never have worked. They said here, at least we had friendships that had history to them and that went back to before this had happened. We even knew people who had really liked Dylan when he seemed like a different person than who he turned out to be. And we didn't want to leave all that behind. Adam Lanza's uh, situation seems to be a bit different uh, than Dylan Klebold's was because Adam seems to, to have been really, really acutely ill in, in ways that were a lot more overt. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but could you, could you touch on that situation and his mother? Well, Adam Lanza was a deeply disturbed young man, and everyone knew it. Dylan Klebold kept up a pretty good facade of being a pretty all-around normal kind of guy. You know, I saw home videos that had been taken of Dylan three weeks before Columbine happened, and I thought, seems like a normal guy to me. I wouldn't have been worried. Adam Lanza was wildly peculiar and couldn't deal with other people, and he had in the basement and refused to interact with the people around him. And... All parenting requires a constant negotiation between the long term and the immediate term. So on the one hand, you could think, I don't want to have an argument with my child tonight because it's not fun to have an argument with your child on any given night. And on the other hand, you would think if my child never eats any vegetables, he's not going to turn out very well. And so there is a constant process of going back and forth between um, the um, uh the experience of uh, being a parent and the experience of being um, uh, uh, the, sorry, between the experience of making things work in the short term and the experience of making things work in the long term. And I think Adam Lanza's mother cushioned him from all of the things he found difficult and always chose what was good in the day over what would have been good in the longer term. And that ended up being a tragic decision. Um, he had been indulged and indulged and indulged. And in the end, she was the first person he killed. Somebody asks, how do we address mental health as a social justice issue? We've touched on that a bit. Is, is there anything that you guys would like to add? You know, we talked about being a, an advocate and we talked about, oh, the government and the healthcare system being a bit broken and the prejudice towards people who struggle with mental illness and own, and their own self judgments. Um, anything that you would like to to add that hasn't been touched on? I mean, you you just said it. Health disparities within the healthcare system, but also just realizing that for people meeting their basic needs sometimes really impacts their mental health. And as Andrew was saying, some people aren't aware that they're really struggling because they're made to think that this is how they should always feel. And some people label it resiliency. Resiliency, oh, you're so resilient. You went through all of this. But Andrew said this earlier, if you ask those people if they would want to go through all of the stuff that they've had to go through, most of them would say no. Yes, there's lessons learned, but 
many people would rather not struggle and have an easy life than just continue, you know, struggling and not having what they need in their life. Juan, do you take meds? No. Okay. Andrew, how, uh, how many times have you tried to go off your meds or, or have you been strict with, with them since they started? And I, I apologize if that's too personal of a question. I'll go first and say, I would say three or four times with disastrous results, I have tried to go off my meds because I thought, oh, I've changed now or, you know, my diet's better. And, uh, you know, cue three months later, suicidal thinking, et cetera, et cetera. Um, pretty parallel to what you just said. Uh, I've tried to go off them. Sometimes I've tried to change them. I frequently adjust the dosage of something. I mean, it's an ongoing negotiation and it requires a lot of management. It is, as um, someone I interviewed said, uh, like being a science project with no due date. Um, <laughs> and so that's, that's, um, that's ongoing. But when I have gone off them entirely, um, yeah, there are usually a few months of sort of pleasant um, hypomania, and then there's a horrible crash. And the horrible crashes can be very difficult to dig back out of. It's not like you then just start taking your medication and two weeks later, you're fine again. The horrible crashes are, I mean, they've been shown that that kind of horrible depressive crash is not good for your brain physiologically and anatomically. And it's also not good um, in terms of what it will take to regain your balance in your own life. So I got to a point now quite some years ago when I thought, um, unless there's some gigantic scientific breakthrough, I'm stuck with this. And, you know, I hate it. I mean, I hate the idea of um, uh, being dependent on this little thing of medication. Um, you know, I remember thinking um, during, I don't know, 9-11, I thought, what if the pharmacy doesn't open before next week and I run out of the medication I'm supposed to be taking? I go on trips and I have this big hand luggage that I carry with me because I have sort of a three-week supply of medication just in case the plane crashes in some strange place. And I, I saw it and so forth. It's a real nuisance, but it has also saved my life. And I, when I encounter friends who rule out thinking about going on meds, at least exploring it with a psychiatric evaluation or multiple visits to different psychiatrists to get second opinions. Uh, I always say, what are the side effects of not being on meds? And the side effects are, as I said, ultimately um, with many repeated episodes, um, the effectively the carving into your brain of the pathways of depression. Now, there are some people for whom the meds don't work, and there are some people who are able to handle uh, even very extreme mental health needs without the use of meds. So I don't recommend them as a universal. Yes, but and thank you for say, adding that. Oh, they're so artificial. And, you know, what about the real you? And I feel like, well, the real me actually probably wouldn't brush his teeth and they would all have fallen out by now. You know, <laughs> and there's nobody militating against toothpaste. Like we all have to use the things that work for us. And also I say, you it's not like losing your virginity. You can try them and if you don't like them, you can go off them. And if you wanna stick with them, you can stick with them. So it can be worth experimenting with. And also life is short. And if you decide not to take um, meds and say, I think I can fight my way out of this by myself, you might fight your way out of it by yourself, but you will never be 32 again. And you might've had less of an optimal experience than you could have had of being 32. And so I 
I don't push meds on anyone. As I said, they're right for some people and wrong for other people. But I push being open to the idea or to at least trying it on people. I think people should not have a kind of philosophical objection to it and let time trickle through their fingers. Yes, because a different question is, do you trust pharmaceutical companies? Well, no, but that isn't mutually exclusive from keeping the option open of taking meds. I will never fully trust pharmaceutical companies and they have saved my life. Right. I mean, no one trusts pharmaceutical, no thinking people trust pharmaceutical companies, I don't think, but um, they were the ones who had a motivation, financial or otherwise, to develop these medications. And as I said, I really, I mean, I feel so lucky. You know, Juan and I were talking about generational things. Boy, generationally, if I had been born 50 years earlier, there would have been no treatment for my depression and I would have had a miniaturized, reduced life in a million different ways. And the fact that I have ended up having a, a life that doesn't feel so miniaturized, you know, I'm, I'm lucky that I was responsive to medication and I've done endless talk therapy too. And I still have depressive episodes and I have bad years and good years and all the rest of it. But I still feel like I've been able to do things that I wouldn't have been able to do in another time including helping thousands and thousands of people with the things that you have written, the research that you've done, the advocacy. Um, you know, a friend of mine calls the noonday demon the Bible of depression. And whenever she gets down, she cracks it open and it helps her. Thank you. You must, you must get emails and correspondence all the time from people thanking you for opening up about what you wanted probably to keep quiet about. I, I do get nice letters from people and they're very, very gratifying. People have been helped. I also hear from a lot of people who are struggling um, and I'm very aware of how much pain there is in the world and very much aware of how common this complaint is. If you write a book about depression, there's almost no one you meet who won't say, I was wondering about, or I've been worried about my sister, or um, let me tell you about my wife, she just isn't, or my husband, or whatever it is. Um, it's, it's ubiquitous. We're going to take one last question. This person asks, and again, like a lot of the questions, we've touched on this a bit, but maybe we have something to add. How can we support peers who want to start their advocacy journey, but find starting it too intimidating? Um, yeah, I, I, there's no perfect starting point, I guess, for advocacy in general. And it looks different. You might, you know, oftentimes there's a, this perception that advocacy has to be like policy. And the real answer is it doesn't have to. And you might already be doing advocacy and you might not even be aware of it. For many people, maybe advocating for your parents' health in the healthcare system, that might look like advocacy for you and you might not be aware. But I think what people need to realize is that there's so many other people doing it, so you don't have to do it alone. You could join your communities, your organizations, and start there. Start with other people and just build that community and that support group to push for what you believe in together. Andrew, anything you'd like to add? I think that's really it. I think it's. Um, uh, I think it's helping. Um, you know, I always think of that uh, Emily Dickinson poem. If I can, um, uh, if I can 
uh, stop one heart from breaking. I shall not live in vain if I can spare one soul the aching um, or ease one pain or help one fainting robin unto the nest again. I shall not live in vain. And so I think just start small, start small and then let it go and let it grow. But everyone counts. And uh, the only thing I would add is the simplest way to advocate is to listen. Mm. And also take care of yourself if somebody starts draining you. You know, a lot of people, uh, myself included, have had to set boundaries with people who didn't want to get help for themselves, who didn't want to deal with their alcoholism or deal with their depression. They wanted to talk on the phone for an hour, monopolize the conversation, talk about how sad their life is and how pitiful they are. And uh, eventually I had to say, man, I, you know, I, I, I can't help you if, if we're not on the, on the same team. If you don't want to help yourself um, and it, it's, it feels, I don't want to feel like an audience member. You know, there are times that we need to show up and just shut up and listen to somebody. And then there are other times when we have to listen to our body and say, this, this person is draining me and they do not seem like they really want to help themselves or open their minds to what a different light life might look like. A psychiatrist I know, Helen Mayberg said, um, the work I do can release the parking brake, but the patient still has to drive the car. I love it. I love it. Juan Acosta, Andrew Solomon, thank you guys so much. A shout out to NAMI West LA for, for having us. And uh, I appreciate it. Be good to yourselves. Be nice to yourselves. You're uniquely positioned to be your own best friend. Why would you talk to yourself like somebody that needs a restraining order? Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Loved talking to those guys. Um, we'll put links to their stuff in the show notes for this episode. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana. Where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Uh, 
dive into some surveys? Is that what we should do now? Do you feel like it? Do you feel up to it? This is an awful moment filled out by Boots, and she writes, My mother was recently diagnosed with a rare degenerative neurological condition that, amongst other changes, has caused her to lose the ability to use her left hand. Because of her mobility challenges, I have started to drive to her home to help her on a more regular basis. When I get her dressed, her left hand tenses up and does its own thing. We crack up as I try to get into it into a sleeve and it absolutely does not cooperate as though it doesn't belong to her body. We say, get that hand into shape. What does it think it's doing? Being able to laugh with her has been such a balm during the heartbreak of her condition, and I am eternally grateful for her grace and humor in handling this huge transition. Being able to cry from laughing is a great way to balance out the normal sad crying. Thank you for that one. And I personally needed to read that one because with the... the, health stuff that I'm going through, you know, my brain projects it to a place where there will be no joy, there will be no human connection, and it's, and it's going to degrade everything. And it never occurs to me in those moments that if the worst case scenario did happen, that it could be a vehicle to become closer to other people and to see the beauty in the, in the darkness which I've experienced in, you know, dealing with addiction and, you know, trauma and all these other things, yet our brain forgets those things. Why is it that we forget that, but we remember the kid that insulted us in third grade? There must be some evolutionary purpose to our brain, remembering the negative and forgetting the positive. Anyway, thank you for that that beautiful survey, that... That's just what I needed to read. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself sitting on the bathroom floor. She's in her 20s, identifies as straight, was raised in a stable and safe environment, never been sexually, physically, or emotionally abused. Darkest thoughts. I think about how I forced bulimia onto myself. I was deep into into a binge eating disorder, but I started to convince myself that I was just a normal fat girl who was extra worried about her eating, so I started forcing myself to throw up. Deep down, I'm proud to be bulimic uh, because it at least means that I have the strength to contradict the damage I do to myself daily, even if it doesn't totally reverse the damage. Darkest Secrets My university is rated best campus food in the country, but I don't let myself eat any of it. I force myself to binge on brown rice as punishment for my eating disorder, and then I skip class and sit on the bathroom floor and think about how much I hate myself. I purge, but not enough to make any significant difference. I don't actually purge to get rid of the calories, but instead to cause some sort of damage to myself. I'm a self-sabotager and I force myself to distance myself from others so that I feel isolated and depressed. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I dream of having a relationship with a boy who lives on my floor in college, but deep down I know that I'm way too body dysmorphic to have a valid sexual relationship with anyone. Sharing this makes me sad and anxious that my eating disorder will never go away. You know, all the stuff that we've talked about so far this is this is textbook 
textbook, the, the illness in the brain, hogging the microphone and doing all the talking, you know, using words like always and never and isolating and pulling away, you know, like a, like a wounded animal just wanting to curl up in the corner. And it, it breaks my heart to, to, um, to read this because I, I know and I think probably the majority of you listening know to some degree what that feels like. We just feel like nobody's going to get us. You know, nobody's going to love us. I have to be perfect before someone will love me. And that's such a lie. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would tell my parents that I'm not okay, even though I keep assuring them that I am. I would tell my nutrition major advisor to fuck off because I have an eating disorder and there's no way I'm going to become a registered dietitian and I think about food for the rest of my life. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish to be skinny again. I wish to want to get out of bed, to not think about food all the time, and to form meaningful relationships. You know, I am I am not a therapist, but there there clearly sounds like there is depression involved because you struggle to get out of bed. And I have a feeling that that depression is one of the things that that is going to have to be dealt with for the other things to ease, ease. You know, those of us that that have addictions, the Trauma and depression and anxiety can be the things that are the gasoline that our addiction runs on. And just a thought, but maybe seeing a therapist or uh, talking to a psychiatrist, just kind of weighing your options, um, it might give you some some momentum to begin to deal with the, the eating disorder, which it sounds like feels completely overwhelming right now. And um, you sound like a really, really sweet, sensitive young woman. And um, I'm just sending you, just sending you some love. Sending you some love. This is a happy moment from Chronically Mentally Ill, and she writes, I was recently in a residential treatment facility for a month for my mental illness. The people I met and my roommate made the experience one of the best of my life. A few of us would sit out in the courtyard in the evenings, share our thoughts, struggles, play games, and laugh with each other. The unconditional support and understanding of others struggling is indescribable. You know, that... that is what I just tried to say, but not as eloquently um, regarding the last survey. The power of human connection and unconditional love. It's, it's atomic. It's so fucking powerful. This is from the babysitter survey filled out by a... Uh, woman who's straight uh she's 21 she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment uh the name she uses is alanon and on and on and on 
And uh, she writes, my nanny for years always crossed boundaries with my family. And even though she was clearly boundaryless, in my parents' defense, they could never in a million years have predicted some of her behavior and therefore could not have set any boundaries unless they outright fired her, which they never did. Shocker. One time I remember coming home from the state fair with my nanny and sister. My parents were out of town, so my nanny had planned on staying the night and sleeping in my parents' bed. I remember her coming out of my parents' bathroom wearing a revealing nightie that was my mom's and almost flaunting it in front of my sister and me. We were no more than seven and nine years old, max, and I had never seen lingerie before, let alone my own mother's lingerie being worn by my nanny. My nanny always got on my nerves and was very controlling. I openly shit-talked her to my mom whenever she'd leave, and unfortunately, this never got my mom's attention enough to replace her. Uh, Did you ever tell anyone? Did you think it was normal? Do you believe this had any effect on you? I know I told my mom, at least, but I can't remember when. I'm not sure if my sister and I told her immediately after it happened or if we did years later. I knew it wasn't normal because I knew that my nanny had, quote, borrowed something that she shouldn't have and that she did it without asking. I also knew that the garment was associated with sex because of how it looked and by virtue of how revealing it was. It also made me extremely uncomfortable uncomfortable because she put it on with the intention of sleeping in my parents' bed that night, which would not have been made weird if it weren't for her otherwise overt sexual suggestiveness. I knew it was fucked up and fucking weird even as a kid. It made me despise her even more than I already did. She was never outright, quote, abusive to us, but clearly lacked boundaries and used a very old school approach to reprimanding us. I remember getting a timeout bench for my birthday one year. It even had timeout etched into the back of it. It was presented to us as a joke, but I knew it was passive-aggressive as fuck, and I felt like it was her way of punishing me for not, quote, loving her as if I was her kid. To this day, I have her blocked on Facebook and won't let her have my number because apparently she still reaches out to my mom and asks about my sister and me. Every year on my birthday, I get a card from her with nothing in it, which means my mom has given her my address without my permission. In a way, I don't even mind because it's clearly meeting some sort of need this woman has, and as long as I never have to see her in person, I don't care. I throw the cards out immediately anyways. Uh, Also, I remember being taken to Walmart by this babysitter uh, slash nanny for professional photos that I thought were per my mom's request. It wasn't until I was an adult when I found out that the numerous times my sister and I had to get professional photos taken that they were done without my mom's knowledge and behind her back. There were some done on Christmas and another set or two done where we had pink boas hats and fake pearls on. All along, my sister and I thought my mom was the one making us do this, but lo and behold, this nanny was superseding my parents and doing weird shit while she was on the clock and living out some weird mom and or housewife fantasy of parading two cute little girls around, passing them off as her own. Apparently, my mom found out about the Christmas photos for the first time by receiving copies of them inside a Christmas card that our nanny had mailed to our house. I honestly don't even know if my mom just let her continue to do this after that. And honestly, I don't even want to know. It's all so weird and I'm exhausted just thinking about the metal gymnastics required to make sense of it all. That is such a, a 
great way of describing the exhaustion of shit, especially shit that's in a kind of a gray area, you know? The shit that, like, you know, it. nobody's going to go to jail. It's hard to even say what it is or what creeps you out about it, but you just know it wasn't right and it bugs you. And yeah, ah. Uh. Remembering these things, what feelings come up? I don't have resentment towards my nanny anymore, but it brings up anchor towards my mom who hired her, continued to let her nanny us despite the weird shit that always happened, and for giving this person my address without my permission. You know, a suggestion I have would be to tell your mom, hey, stop giving that person, I guess it's too late because she's got your address now, but um, when you change addresses, I would suggest that you tell your mom in no uncertain terms you do not want that woman to get your address. And, you know, the great thing about setting boundaries with people is you put the ball in their court and you give them a chance to reveal their character and how they feel about you. Do you feel any damage was done? Yes. Not sure how much in the grand scheme of things because this mostly pales in comparison to the other damage that was done to me throughout my childhood. If anything, the feelings of abandonment associated with feeling passed around a lot as a child are more profound. Thank you for sharing that. I feel like I should say more, but as I share at the beginning of the podcast... My brain is, uh, my, if my brain were a highway, uh, my thoughts would be in the right lane with uh, its blinker on for a half hour. This is a happy moment filled out by Liam, who identifies as agender, and they write, My mom called me just to check in and see how I was doing. My relationship with my mom has always been pretty crappy, but since becoming an independent adult, she has become more respectful of boundaries and started actually listening to me. On this particular phone call, she apologized for sending me to a church camp. I was a sensitive kid and had a hard time with crowds, flashing lights, and loud noises. I begged her not to make me go, but she sent me anyway, despite being fully aware that the camp was literally my worst nightmare. I accepted her apology without dismissing the harm that it caused, which was surprisingly healing in its own way. Man, do I love that. Man, do I love that. Such a great example that it's never too late to try to right a wrong, to rebuild a relationship with somebody, to take ownership of your part in things. You know, people don't expect us to be perfect. And if they do, fuck them. But a reasonable expectation in a relationship is for that person to own their behavior if it hurt us. Even if they can't completely understand that it hurt us, to at least accept that our reality is that it hurt. And it's so hard with people who are raised in emotionally illiterate environments that expressing your feelings of hurt isn't necessarily a way of trying to push, punish that other person or make them feel bad about themselves. Rather, it's a way of saying, please look at me. Please look at the real me. Please, please respect me.
This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Scotty. He is uh, in his 40s, identifies as straight, was raised in a pretty dis- or slightly dysfunctional environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. I was in first or second grade. An older male, about 18 to 20 years old, would take me into the woods near our ap- apartment complex. I don't know his name. He molested me, had me perform oral sex and try anal sex on him. He performed oral sex on me. I felt validated as a young boy getting the attention of an adult male, but understood it as a secret and bad. I never said anything because I understood an underlying threat that I better not. It's hard to classify this as abuse because it was two times, not a long pattern. Lemmy, Lemmy. Pull over right here, mister. That is absolutely fucking abuse. And it didn't matter if it only happened once. It didn't matter. It doesn't matter if it happened for two seconds. Hold on, let me get down off my soapbox. Uh, in my high school, middle school and high school years, I still never told anyone, but thought about it constantly and repeatedly felt shame. Was I gay? If not, why was I immediately? Why was I not immediately repulsed? What if I contracted something? This made me fearful of anything sexual, as the guilt around it was too much to handle. I continued thinking, "What's wrong with me?" I took all this inward and hated myself for a long time. My senior year, after hurting myself a few times, I got help for a couple of months with a therapist and finally told a trusted few. This impacted my intimacy with all future partners. While I was able to deal with this at age 20, here I'm in my 40s and find it surfacing again. I'm frustrated. I can't just logically set it aside. Certainly others have had much worse abuse situations than I have. Why can't I be done with it? If I don't want it, why am I holding on to it? I want to be strong so I can love my wife from a full place. It's not her job to make me feel better, so what can I do? Yeah, maybe it's not her job to make you feel to to make you feel better, but it's her duty as your partner to love you for who you are and especially the things that you've been through. And that doesn't mean, you know, for her to be a doormat or, you know, whatever, but that's you know, if if we're committed to a partner, why would we not want to enjoy the benefits of having somebody that we can be emotionally intimate with? I know, because it's fucking hard and it's scary. And a lot of us, it wasn't modeled for us in, in childhood. But, you know... You write, I want to be strong so I can love my wife from a full place. What about letting her love you as you struggle to love yourself so that it can help you get to a full place? That's what I had to do with my support groups. I had to let them love me until I could begin to not hate myself. And I'm, I wouldn't say I'm at a place where all my self-hatred and self-judgment and self-doubt is gone, but it's much better than it used to be. And it started with getting vulnerable 
and accepting that I didn't have all the answers and I couldn't fix myself. And a big part of it was letting go of anger and sadness through crying, you know, maybe when I'm sharing at a meeting, raising my voice, not at the people in the room, but just at the, the fucking universe, at my childhood, at whatever, at myself. Those were the things that helped me heal. Darkest thoughts. As a pretty happy married husband and father of almost 20 years, why don't I feel secure? What if I had not been so afraid in my younger years? Did I jump into marriage too quickly to be secure? Am I bisexual or curious? Should I even be asking that question? I made a commitment, exclamation point. These all sound like ways of you trying to control your pain by categorizing it instead of just processing it and then maybe getting the answers on the other side. And that's just me talking from experience. darkest secrets. In college, I was laying in a public room in the dorm that was somewhat private. I fell asleep reading while laying on the ground on my stomach. I woke up to a guy massaging my shoulders. This was a guy who jokingly hit on me earlier in the semester. When I started to get up and say, what are you doing? He hit me and said, lay still. I froze and let him continue to massage me for several minutes, but I absolutely hated it. I hated myself for not sticking up for myself. I hated feeling so powerless on the ground. Typing it out now, it's embarrassing because it seems so minor and I was an adult by then. I recognize it now as being directly related to being abused as a kid. You know, and and it is no reflection on your strength or your manliness. It's just sometimes how our central nervous systems react. You know, the fight, flight, or freeze. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. A woman taking full control of me. I don't mean whipping, etc., but just totally her getting off by using me any way she wants. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? While I know they did the best they could, I'd like to tell my parents our upbringing was chaotic. Why did you not wonder where I was? Dad, where were you? To the man who abused me, how could you? What happened to you? What, if anything, do you wish for? Peace in my head and confidence to help others. I think a support group is a great place to find those things. You know, I don't have peace in my head all the time, but I have it way more than I did before I started going to support groups. And I do have the confidence to help others. And none of that is because I'm special. It's just because I kept fucking showing up to those support groups when I didn't want to go, which was most of the time. You know, there's a saying in support groups, when you don't feel like going to a meeting, go to a meeting and keep going to meetings until you want to go to meetings. Have you shared these things with others? I shared with a close girlfriend around 20 years old and with my wife, but not very detailed. How do you feel after writing these things down? Lighter, but also frustrated. This this still indeed impacts me. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? While someone took advantage of you, they don't get to define you. 
Oh, buddy, thank you so much for that. That that um, your survey really touched me, and that is, I'm not saying that uh, is not an awful pun. It, it really moved me. Uh, and then I think this is going to be the last one. Finally, this is a uh, a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Jessica. And she writes, through the work of therapy, I've come to the realization that I have had depression and anxiety for most of my life. I have three children, five and under. Holy fuck. And my oldest is already showing signs of anxiety. I'm doing my best to give her the tools that I never received. She's been very anxious about the end of her first year of school. She doesn't want to miss her teacher or friends. The evening before her last day, I was getting her ready for bed, and she just started crying and was so upset about this big transition and change, despite also being excited about summer break. I asked her if it would be helpful if I rocked her in the rocking chair before getting into bed. So I rocked my 45-pound 5-year-old until she was relaxed. You never know when the last of something will be with your children, and it made me so happy that I was able to sit with her like that, something we hadn't done in a really long time. It made me think of us as adults. Isn't that something that all of us with mental illness want sometimes? To be comforted and rocked with no questions asked. Oh, I love that. And yes, you know, when I called my my girlfriend <clears throat> on the phone a couple of hours ago, you know, I just said, I'm in, I'm in a dark place and I'm sad and, uh, and I'm afraid. And she didn't try to fix me. She just, she told me she loved me and she listened and, and I felt soothed, you know? So there, that rocking chair is there for us if, if we are willing to get out of our comfort zone and say, hey, I'm not doing okay. I could use some help. And I'm, I'm proud of myself that I did that today. I'm getting a little choked up. I am proud of myself that I didn't pretend that everything's going great and I'm feeling awesome about the future, but I feel better than I did at noon. And I'll take that. So if you're out there and you're struggling, just never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know weird is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.